Let's get into the word of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We read verses 3 through 5. Today we will conclude our No More Wagons series. And if you haven't been here the last three weeks, I would like to encourage you to go back, go to our app, go to our website, tr.church, watch the last three. It's been absolutely remarkable. Lesson one, we focused on taking our walk with God serious. It's got to be personal. It can't be something we throw in a wagon and drag behind us. God is calling us to take it upon our shoulders. And we talked about how when the Israelites, when King David got ready to bring the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines, that they tried to transport it just like the Philistines did. They tried to put it on a wagon. Tried to bring it to where they was taking it. But what happened? When the ox stumbled... The ark began to shake. A man named Uzzah reached out to put his hand to stabilize the ark. And when he did, immediately he died. Why? You know why? Because those that know to do good, but they don't do it, to them it is sin. Uzzah and David knew better than to put the presence of God on a wagon. The Philistines could, could get away with it, but the Israelites were in covenant with God. They knew better. So when he reached the set of the ark, he was struck dead. His relationship with God was so fragile that someone else stumbled and he died. Our walk with God can't be dependent on someone else's connection. Lesson two, we discussed how the pieces had to be carried together. They were made in a way that required more than one person. It took four people to carry the ark of the covenant. While our walk with God can't be dependent on someone else, we were not made to do this alone. We should be accountable to one another. I need you. You need me. We are the body of Christ. When you're weak, I've got to be strong. When I'm weak, I need you to be strong. Then last week, we talked about how the ark was supposed to be mobile. God didn't save us just for us to be consumers, but to be ambassadors. Carrying his glory to a lost world. That's why he commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news to everyone. The two greatest commandments are what? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. It's about God and it's about others. Now we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Verse 5, casting down imaginations and everything that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We love to read verse 3 and verse 4 about authority. However, with that authority comes a responsibility to handle it the right way. Boundaries in my life. One enemy authority takes care of. We can rebuke the devil. We can rebuke his wiles, his methods, his imps. We can rebuke that. We can take care of that. But there's another enemy called our flesh. 
that it will only be taken care of with discipline. One enemy we got to rebuke. The other enemy we've got to let, let, let our flesh know that it's in submission to the Spirit of God. You know what the most underused word in the kingdom is? Self-discipline. Self-control. Knowing how to tell ourselves, no, one enemy take care of in the name of Jesus. The other enemy, you need a altar daily to kneel down and say, God, I've got to get my flesh under control. It's divine tension. That's what I want to preach to you for a little while today about. Divine tension. Divine tension. God, I need your anointing. I need your power. Help me to preach to these great people your word. God, help me to say it the way you want me to say it. Deliver it the way you want me to deliver it. God, and let lives be changed. Give us direction on how to grow. God, this isn't an easy sermon to preach, but it's a word that you've given me for today. I pray your favor over these precious people. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody shout amen. If you love the Lord, give him a hand clap of praise. You may be seated. There's a unique place in Virginia called Colonial Williamsburg. It's a famous town which has restored buildings from the 1700s. There are shops, a couple of restaurants, the governor's mansion, and an Episcopalian building that was constructed in 1715 resides there. This blew my mind. They still have regular services in this building. You know what their current membership is? A church that was built in 1715. 1,600 members. 1,600 members. It's called the Bruton Parish. And it's a beautiful structure. There are pews. On their pews, there are plaques with the names of some of the more famous people who attended there. George Washington, James Madison, Patrick Henry, and Thomas Jefferson. But what caught my attention while looking at pictures was how the sanctuary was laid out. The pulpit is up high about 10 feet. Can you imagine me trying to climb that to preach today? Like, I'm going to need 10 minutes to just breathe. Let me catch my breath. The preacher has to climb a set of stairs to preach. And the pews, they've got doors on them. They've got doors on the pews. How unique is that? Like, look, this is my road. You can't get in. Here's the door. The door is shut. Not getting in. <laughs> my row. However, the most significant thing to me was that the seating was divided into four sections so that the aisles formed a cross. The design was deliberate. It's called a uh, cruciform or a cross design, and it followed the pattern of many of the cathedrals in the old world of Europe. Why? Why did they build it this way? Because they intended to communicate that their faith was based on the cross by how their building was constructed. Our lives should be the same way. Our walk, our talk, our dress, our look should be constructed in a way that people sees the cross every time they see us. We are to represent what we carry. And just as the sanctuary at Bruton Parish was deliberately designed to teach its people something, so was the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Tabernacle means tent, dwelling place, or sanctuary. It was a sacred place where God chose to meet his people, the Israelites, during the 40 years they wandered in the desert under Moses' leadership. It was the place where the leaders and people came together to worship and offer sacrifices. Moses would also uh, recall how God's glory settled on it once it was completed and set apart for his use. It was remarkable. It was divinely instructed. It was unique. God literally told Moses how to build it. 
Six times we read that Moses had to make it exactly according to the specification that God had given him. And one of those times is in Hebrews 8 and 5. The word tells us that the Old Testament priests served in a system of worship that was only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. When God relayed his vision for the tabernacle, it didn't come in vague and half-baked ideas, half-baked ideas. It was specific and incredibly detailed. It needed to be built as God specified because God is in details. He's in, he said, when you see the tabernacle, you're going to see a picture of heavenly things in every detail. For example... The first thing that you would see as you approach the tabernacle is a fence that is about seven feet high made of linen hung on pillars. It was a reminder that there was a barrier between humanity and God. And like this fence, it is a man-made barrier and is the result of our sin. We were created to have fellowship with God but stubbornly chose to go our own independent way. And because of that, our relationship with God was broken. The Bible reminds us that all have sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So nobody's being judged here today. Everybody in this place is a sinner that has been saved by grace. But we do understand if we don't deal with that sin, that the wages of sin is death. Now we all are going to die physically one day unless we're here when the rapture takes place. But there's another form to that type, to death that comes with sin. It's another type of death. We are separated from God spiritually as long as we're not dealing with our sin. However, I've got good news today. There was a gate that was in the fence that was keeping the people from the presence of God. Exodus 27 and 16, for the entrance to the courtyard, make a curtain that is 30 foot long. 30 feet long. Make it from finely woven linen decorated with beautiful embroidery and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Support it with Four posts. Remember, this, this tabernacle is pointing to Jesus one day showing up that we can behold his glory. So what is those, those four posts that, that had their own base that supported the gate? Do you know what those four posts represent? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That tell us the story of a Savior that was robed in flesh that showed up that we can have access to the King. Now watch this. There was only one entrance to get in the tabernacle. Only one. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter how prestigious you thought you were. You can be Moses or you can be a common Israelite. You could be old or you can be young. If you wanted to get into the house or the tabernacle of God, you had to go through the same gate that everybody else had to go through. What was this pointing to? This was pointing to Jesus Christ who would show up and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except they come through me. And I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. What about Acts 4 and 12? Neither is there salvation any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What about 2 Corinthians 5 and 21? For our sake he, was, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we believe in Jesus as our substitutionary atonement and are baptized in the only saving name, Jesus' name, then our sin is imputed or, or credited to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. This is the glorious exchange that the gospel offers to everyone who understands the power of Jesus' name. And this is the good news of which we are ambassadors. We see Jesus even in the colors. You've got three colors that this gate is made out of. If you can throw that picture back up there. You've got my favorite color, which is blue. Anybody love the color blue? It's my favorite color. Especially baby blue. Man, that's, that's just my color. It's just, I'll wear blue every day. I got two color dress shirts that I wear, white or blue. That's it. That's it. That's it. I don't branch out much. I don't have red. I got white or blue. I love blue. But the blue in this gate represents his deity. Jesus is the eternal God. John 8 and 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. This is one of Jesus' most profound claims to deity in the Gospels. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. The former wording could be ambiguous and misunderstood, but not the latter. Not only was he claiming to have existed in Abraham's day, but he was also claiming divine identity. When Moses asked God, he said, look, when I get to the Israelites, who do you want me to tell them sent me? God said, I am who I am. That's who you tell them that sent you. Jesus identified himself as the God who had spoken to Moses. Meaning our God fully experienced what it was like to be human. Yet without sinning. He faced hunger, pain, temptation, grief, hardship, and rejection. You know why he did that? Because they I am wanted to be present in every situation of our life. And now you face no category of human experience that the I am didn't robe himself in flesh, come to this earth and face to give us victory over. I'm glad today that the same I am that was in the Old Testament and the same I am that was in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John is the same I am presence that we feel in the house. Let the enemy know I am is with me. Let people know when you go out in the community, I am is on my side. I am that I am. But then you had the purple. It represents his royalty. It was a very expensive color and later become associated with the Roman emperor, proving that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You know why purple is so important? Because Jesus was telling us that he was going to be the gate. He was going to be the gate to salvation, but he was going to be the gate to authority. That's why the word of God says that he brought a name that is above every other name. It's above depression. It's above any wile. It's above anxiety. It's above addiction. It's above any attack that the enemy will bring to your life. When you say the name of Jesus, what you're activating is the authority of the one and only king that sits on the throne of power and authority. When you say the name of Jesus, you know what you're saying. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. Because when you activate that name, you're activating the purple of the gate. You're letting the enemy know whatever you do, the I am's with me. And it doesn't matter because greater is he that is within me than he that is against me. If God's on my side, who can be against me? I'm glad today that I've got royalty in my presence. 
Then you have the scarlet. It represents his blood that he shed when he died on Calvary in my place. We are made overcomers by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. Out of all three colors that is a part of the gate, I'm more excited about the scarlet because I do not know where I would be on this Sunday morning if it wasn't for the color of the blood that gave me access to the king. I don't know where I would be. Somebody needs to testify. I may, I've been made an overcomer by the blood of the lamb and by the word of my testimony see there were heavenly lessons God wanted to teach his people through that early tabernacle earthly tabernacle and each of them pointed to God wanting to be in the midst of his people when the tabernacle was set up the nation of Israel surrounded it you had three tribes that set up their tents to the north three to the south three to the east and three to the west and right in the middle of their encampment was the tabernacle it was the presence of God and even when the people moved from place to place the tabernacle had to be turned tore down and it had to be ready to be moved but do you know where that tabernacle sat as they were in procession to where they were going it was in the center of them marching to wherever they were going the procession looked like this procession looked like this you had Judah out front meaning praise I could preach on that that's a whole different sermon he said, I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what he said. He said, when the enemy comes in like a flood, I'll lift up a standard against him. Go read about that. He's referring to the tribe of Judah. Every time you praise God, you're setting up a standard against the enemy that lets the enemy know, hey, God's getting ready to move me out of defeat to victory. God's getting ready to move me out of depression to joy. God's getting ready to take me out of just enough to more. Every time you praise God, you're sending out the lion of the tribe of Judah to go before you. And then you had Issachar. I don't know what they mean. Zebulon, I ain't got a clue. Then you had the Gershonites with two wagons carrying curtains, coverings, and hangings, etc. Then you had the Merarites with four wagons carrying the boards and the bars and the pillars, etc. Then you had Reuben and Simeon and Gad. And then right in the middle, you had the Kohathites. And they were carrying the holy things that were so important they couldn't be placed on wagons. They carry their responsibilities on their shoulders. Divine tension is something we need to feel the weight of. It took commitment for them to pick up that Ark of the Covenant and carry it with them. It, it, it took effort. It took, it took them feeling the weight of the responsibilities. God said, I don't want my presence on a wagon being drugged behind you. I want it on your shoulders. I want you to feel the tension of what you're carrying. I don't have time to break down each piece of furniture. But I am going to break down a couple pieces. You had the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God was at the center. It was at the center. You know what, you know what the core to sinfulness is? Selfishness. When we make God revolve around our lives instead of making our lives revolve around the presence of God, we will never be able to carry what God wants us to carry until we get him to the center of our lives. Let me ask you a question. When you get ready to do something, do you seek him first? Or do you seek out what you think, what you think you know, what, how you think it's going to go, what you think? Or do you say, God, let me find you. Because I want you at the center of what I'm getting ready to move on, what I'm getting ready to act on. At the center of our lives must be the presence of God. Then you had the table of showbread, the word of God. 
Listen, if you're not eating of that showbread, if you're not eating of the word of God every day, then you're filling up on junk. You're not, you're not going to want the word. It, can I go ahead and tell you, and I'm not trying to correct anybody. I just want you reading the Bible every day. But more than likely, if you don't read the word first thing in the morning, you're not going to read it for the rest of the day. Good morning, America, and sit in the way of the word. Cooking show. I love cooking shows. I do. Don't, don't act like you don't. I can't cook, but man, the shows come on. I'm just sitting there like, man, I need to go there. <laughs> you know it's serious when you plan your next vacation. This is a true story. We plan vacations around them cooking shows. <laughs> but if you're filling up on all of that, and you don't get the, sh- the, the shoe bread early in the morning. And, and you don't get the word of God in your life. What about the lampstand? Preacher, what, what about that lampstand? In the Old Testament, they had a lampstand. And, and in the, it was in the tabernacle. And every morning, these lamps, the wicks, had to be trimmed. Because if, if, if the wicks weren't trimmed, it would frustrate the shining. The fire wouldn't burn like it needed to burn. So the priest was cutting away those things which were not needed and which frustrated the shining. So when you get up in the morning and you get the word out and you start dealing with things in your life, don't only deal with sin, deal with your frustrations. Listen, I'm going to help you right now. If you're frustrated with somebody, start trimming the wicks. Start dealing with that frustration. Not with anybody else. You ain't got to call everybody. In the presence of God, deal with the frustration. And I can tell you, I've been frustrated lately. Today's confession. Just everybody sit down. I've been leading frustrated. I've been going home frustrated. I've been frustrated. I haven't been frustrated. None of y'all. Not a one. I've been frustrated. This building project. I've been frustrated. Things aren't going the way that we plan. I've been frustrated. And I started reading this. And I said, man, that priest had to get up every morning. And he had to, th- those wicks that were charred, he had to cut that, that charred piece off that wick in order for it to burn like it needed to burn. And I said, God, shame on me for not getting up in the morning and dealing with the things that I'm frustrated about. Shame on me for carrying your glory in a way that I'm frustrating everybody else around me. And listen, in this lampstand, it had to be powered by oil. If it didn't have any oil, it wasn't going to burn. So you know what? I get, my, I get my bread in the morning, not my money. I get my bread, which is the word of God. Oh, money, money's good too. Come on, bring on that in. I get my bread in the morning. Then I make sure, I make sure that all my frustrations are dealt with. I'm giving you a pattern. And then I make sure that I got a little oil in my life to make it through the day. God, let that anointing fill me up today. I don't want to walk out the house with no oil. Because if I walk out the house with no oil, it's divine tension. There's some things you just got to do and you got to deal with. Then you had the altar of incense. That's intercessory prayer. Then you had the altar of sacrifice. That's repentance. Then you had the, the brazen laver. That's washing of the word. Let me tell you this. I've been baptized about 20 times. That's how bad I was. I had to go down 20, 20 times. Had to bring me down. I'd be calling them. Hey, look, coming back up there. Put me down, Jesus' name. That baptistry so big back there, we're going to be able to baptize seven at one time. Big. Literally. I bought a baptistry that I got to get in there with whoever we baptize. So I got to give me some waiters. Climb up in that baptistry. Jesus' name. Hold you down seven seconds. Let you back up. I don't need to hear nothing from the Stewart family right now. I don't need to hear nothing from the Stewart family. I don't need to hear nothing. But that brazen laver, 
literally made, made from what those Hebrew women, some believe the mirror, some believe the silver, that they took out of Egypt with them. So when that priest approached that laver, he saw his true image. He just left that bloody altar of sacrifice. And as he approaches, approaches that laver, he sees the blood. He sees the covering. He sees his filth. He sees everything. And then he washes. Now, we, we preach that that's repentance and baptism, and it is. And I'm not against. If we can repent more than once, then, hey, we'll baptize you again. If you need to be baptized, that's fine. But when, when you talk about the laver, if you've been baptized once, you're okay. But what you got to do every day is you still got to get up and you got to take the word of God and you got to wash yourself in the word of God. And you got to look within the word and say, I'm approaching your throne, God. What do you need to show? I'm approaching your laver. What do you need to show me today that's in my life that I need to get out of my life? The only way God's people could approach him was by sacrifice. And the only way they could stay close to him was by continual cleansing. And here we are in 2022. And we think that we can just bask in the presence of God without daily word, daily repentance, and daily prayer. He's a God of details. The only way they could stay close to God was continually to deal with their flesh and their authority in the kingdom. It was divine Tension. Someone named Tex Walton figured it this way. He was saying in he was saying in prayer one day, he was like, God, I'm thinking about tithing, but I don't want to just tithe finances. I want to tithe my time. So he got down and he began to write some things down. And this is what he figured out. He figured out there are 168 hours in a week. A tenth of that would be 16.8 hours. Then he figured the time he spent each week in church and saw that he still had one hour and 20 minutes each day left. So he divided that up into two 40-minute time slots, 40 minutes of Bible study for Bible study and 40 minutes for prayer. Each day he got up. Now, I'm not telling you to do that today because it's got to be you. I can't tell you. I can't tell you how to set up your daily disciplines. You've got to fit. You know your schedule. You know what you, some of you may work not. Some of you may work mornings, but I can tell you this, that I believe what this man did was a good thing. We need to figure out. I asked him at 9 a.m. I said, listen, will you take 10 minutes a day to pray and 10 minutes a day in the word? Because I believe if we can give God a little more time, there are some things in our flesh that we feel like we can't get over that we'll begin to get over. The sum of it all, the sum it all up is this, the, to carry the presence of God. It's got to impact the way that I live and the way that I walk. And the last of all the tribes were Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin and Dan and Asher and Naphtali. The point is this, that when they moved, God said, I still want to be in the middle of my people. And that was key because they couldn't have survived without God's presence in the middle. Moses has about three and a half million people to take care of out in the desert with no food or water. Can you imagine? Hey, look, guys, we're leaving Egypt. But we go into the wilderness. Moses, what, what are we going to eat or drink? I don't know. But we go into the wilderness. It's better than Egypt. And every time something went wrong, guess what they said? Hey, <laughs> we had so much food in Egypt. <laughs> Look, I know it was good. I know they was hitting us with those whips. But we had food over there in Egypt. Sometimes we'll get to a place to where we don't know what God's doing. And our immediate mentality is... It was, it was a little bit more comfortable over here in Egypt. 
Because if God's presence isn't at the center, then we, the center of our life, then we start trying to figure out what God's going to do next. And God is saying, I don't need you to figure out what's next. I need you to bask in my presence. All I need you to do is make sure my presence is with you. Listen, feeding that many people would take about 500 tons of food each day. Today, that would require two freight trains, each a mile long, to hold it all. It would have taken 4,000 tons of firewood daily to cook that food. Look, I'm mad at Moses. Like, man, you brought me out of Egypt. Now you got me chopping firewood. You got me going to get 4,000 tons of firewood. And the water. That many people would need about 3 million gallons just to drink. There was no Dollar General. There, there might have been, because them Dollar Generals pop up everywhere. There might have been one. There might have been one right in the middle. <laughs> I'm about to go research that. Give me some theologians. And then think about this: the camping space. Every time they set up camp, it took and it took up an area of two-thirds the size of Rhode Island for them to set up and settle. Moses, what you done got yourself into? <laughs> should have left them in Egypt. <laughs> Moses, you got all these people that you're responsible for. I can see Moses praying, God, listen, I wanted to be used. I know you called me out. My name means the drawed out one. But God, I didn't ask for any of this. God, I didn't ask for this much responsibility. God, what are we going to do? And God said, Moses, do you trust me? And I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Moses, I got you. Don't worry about it. Moses, all you got to do is you remember that pattern that I gave you of me being in the center? If you keep me in the center, Moses, every day the people get up, there's going to be some special bread that's going to fall from heaven called manna. And all they got to do every morning is reach out of their tent and grab them some bread. Somebody needs to understand, God don't need you to figure it out. He just wants to know, am I at the center of your life? On the Sabbath, on the Sabbath when they didn't have to work, they got a double portion. Man, I'm telling you, that had to be, that had to be the original donut. Sis <laughs> Kitty, you need to get a donut called manna. I'm telling you, I'm helping people. I'm helping businesses right now. I'm helping people. <laughs> Give me some of that manna, a little honey on it. God baked the bread and set it right in front of them. All they had to do was reach out and grab. Ooh, I feel prophecy in this place. Your blessing that God is baking for you right now is about to fall right in front of you. You thought it was far away. You thought you would never get there. You thought, how's God going to do it? God said, put me in the middle. And if you put me in the middle of your life, all you got to do is reach out and you're going to grab everything that I promised for your life. Now watch this. I got to hurry. We might, do, we might do no more wagons part five next week. So it says that they were able to pull in the manna according to their household. So that means, you know what that means? If you have more kids, you got more manna. That's not fair. I'm bitter about that. If, if I'm there, I'm like, God, I want the same amount of manna they got. You know what God would tell me? He said, I didn't promise to be fair. I promised to be just.
That's why you can't compare yourself to somebody else. You can't base the favor of God on your life by comparing to somebody else's favor. Because God is just. He's giving you just what you need to do what he's called you to do. Don't you worry about trying to compare to somebody else. God's calling you to be you. So here it is. More capacity equals more provision. And we get mad at God because we don't think he's fair. But God didn't promise to be fair. He promised to be just. So to those who had a lot of need, more bread fell because they had capacity. People that had little need got little bread. It wasn't fair, but it was just. So I want to make this point right here. If you want more of God and you want more from God, create more capacity for God. Jesus said this, according to your faith, it will be done unto you. He was saying, in effect, if you got a cup, I'll fill up a cup. You bring me a barrel, I'll fill up a barrel. But if you bring me a barn, I'll fill up the barn. I've come to tell God today, I'm, I'm bringing more capacity, God. I need more. I want more of you. Not because somebody else has it, because you want me to have it. Listen, we started this Build My River, and I questioned, God, did I hear your voice? But I know I did. Because we're creating more capacity. And you know what? I've, I want to let the enemy know right now. Because there has been frustration, distraction, and there has been battles. The enemy wants to divide. And the closer we get to this wall coming down, the more the enemy is going to be stirred up to try to hinder the revival. But I want to let the enemy know we're putting God in the center. And if God is in the center, the add-on is going to be taken care of. The He's at the center. There is favor. There is, we don't need to, I don't need to figure it all out. I just need to let God be God. Let me hurry, let me hurry, let me hurry, let me hurry. Try not to be a long-winded preacher. If we keep reaching, God will continue to bless. Now, now, here's what happened, though. They got to a point, man, it wasn't enough. It's like, God, that's some good bread. But we need some meat. We're not vegetarians. So God said, you know what? You want something else? And we read in Numbers chapter 11, verse 31, God caused a wind to drive quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. The Israelites were parked in the wilderness of Paran when this happened. A region about 50 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea and 50 miles southwest of the Dead Sea. The significance of that is this. Well, tend to live by the water and they don't fly long distances. If it weren't for a supernatural west wind, they would have never made it this far inland. But when God's at the center, quail all of a sudden just starts dropping from the sky. And based on the Hebrew system of measurement, a day's walk was approximately 15 miles in any direction. So if you square the radius and multiply by pi, We're talking about an area that was almost 700 square miles filled up with quail. And once the quail stopped falling, the Israelites started gathering. Each Israelite gathered no less than 10 homers. 10 homers multiplied by 600,000 men equals 6 million homers at a minimum. A homer equated to roughly 200 liters. And assuming that the quail were average-sized quail, it ranged somewhere in the neighborhood of 105 million quail. You heard what I just said? 105 million quail. Proving to us that when we've got God in the center, he doesn't just provide. He provides in dramatic fashion. 
And if God gives you a vision, if you keep him at the center, he'll give you provision on everything you need. But here's, here, here's the key. Don't seek the blessing. Seek the presence. Because if you seek anything else but the presence, you, presence of God, you'll rely on something that can be taken from you. But if you got the presence with you, he'll go with you to the hospital. He'll go with you on your job. He'll go with you to your school. He'll go with you in your marriage. When you're weak, he'll go with you. When you're broke, he'll go with you. When you fail, he'll be with you. When you let him down, he won't turn away and walk out on you because the devil can't take the presence of God away from my life. When God was telling Moses to build a tabernacle, he gave him a vision of what it was supposed to look like. He was given a vision of each piece of furniture. The tabernacle was an earthly representation of a heavenly temple. The tabernacle was the closest that heaven was going to get to the earth in the Old Testament. But when Jesus showed up, he became the embodiment of that tabernacle and every piece of furniture in the New Testament. Now watch this, and I promise you I'm almost done. I don't want to lie to you. I don't know what almost done is defined as, but I'm almost done. The outer court of the tabernacle represented judgment. This is the place where the sacrifices happened. This is where the innocent animals died for the sins of men. And the bronze that encased the altar and the brazen laver, that metal represented judgment. But once a priest stepped inside the tabernacle itself, there wasn't anything made of bronze. It was made of gold. Gold was the medal of royalty of a king. When Jesus was born, the wise men brought their gifts, and the first gift they brought was gold. The smell was different. Because when you walked to where the gold was, the outside was the smell of sacrifice and death. The inside was the smell of bread, incense, and lamp oil. It smelled like life. And I know what you're thinking. Preacher, you lost your mind. What's that got to do with me? Everything. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? The way that I carry the presence of God. Now listen, if you are always living at the altar of repentance and you never make it into where the bread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense is, you're always going to smell like death. And that's good because you want to live a repentant life. But if you never mature and you never get to a place to where you're smelling like life, then you'll lead people to death, but you'll never lead them to life. So sometimes you got to get past the altar and the laver and you got to get to the word of God and you've got to get to intercessory prayer and you've got to make sure there's light in people's lives. Because in the New Testament, we are the physical representation of a heavenly kingdom. Luke 11 and 2, and he said unto them, when you pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As in heaven, so in earth. Jesus instructed them that the kingdom of heaven would come to earth. That's us. That's me praying. That's me caring. We're a royal priesthood. We're, we've been chosen by God to carry his glory. But let me get to the third piece of metal. Musicians, you can get ready. The third piece of metal that was used in the tabernacle. Obviously, we had bronze and gold. We discussed those. But this metal that I'm getting ready to talk about, it wasn't on the furniture, but it held the tabernacle together. 
It formed the foundations of the posts that held up the fence of the outer court. And it formed the foundation of the boards that shaped the walls of the tabernacle. This metal was silver. Silver was the metal that was commonly used for currency. When you bought or sold or redeemed something in that culture, you'd most likely use silver. When Jesus was betrayed, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. And whereas bronze stood for judgment in the tabernacle, gold for royalty, the silver was the metal of redemption or mercy, proving that when it comes to God's purpose and will, there are always two opposites that balance each other out. You've got to have mercy and you've got to have judgment. Blessings, cursing. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus displayed authority but also submission. It's a divine tension that pulls us into the world to subdue the power of darkness and shine light into it, but also maintain righteousness and holiness. We love, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. But what about be ye holy for I am holy? We love. We love mercy and grace, but there has to be the weight of judgment every once in a while. Because 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5 tells us you've got these weapons of warfare that are mighty. But also, you got to deal with your mind. You got to get up every day and you got to cast down imaginations. You know what? Conviction is the fruit of our walk with God. People that have no convictions are people that do not have a relationship with God. Because you cannot hang around a holy God and want to live an unholy lifestyle. It's divine tension. I got to deal with Josh Payne every day. Hey, Josh Payne's wretched. We all are. We've been born into sin, shaping into iniquity. I got to make sure that Josh Payne, the flesh, is in submission to the spirit so that the man can be everything that God wants me to be. My body is now a temple of the Holy Ghost. So there's boundaries in my life that I'm making sure that I'm protecting the glory that God has me carrying. There's things that may not be sin, but they're necessary in my life for me to carry what God wants me to carry. Because it's gratifying, y'all. I'm telling y'all, it's so gratifying to get up here to know as a young man that God called me to preach. To know, to have a great-grandmother look at me and say, you're a chosen vessel. She also looked at me and said, either you're going to choose the ways of God, do what he called you to do, or you're going to choose the opposite and you're not going to like the outcome of it. And now here I am doing what God's called me. It's gratifying. But you know what? You know what? You know where humility comes in? It's gratifying, God. But the weight of it, the weight of the judgment, the weight of standing by the white throne of judgment and having to stand there and everybody that God allowed me to be connected with in the kingdom, I've got to give an account for their soul. They call this place their home. The weight of it. The weight of it keeps that judgment on my shoulder to know, hey, look, stay in alignment. Stay in alignment. Make sure you're carrying it the right way. Make sure you're repenting daily. Make sure you're getting close to the presence of God. Make sure you're not to preach. Don't read the word just to get a sermon. Make sure the word of God is directing your steps. Strive for peace with everyone and for the whole, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Be holy for the divine tension of rebuking the enemy but also crucifying my flesh telling myself no. and I'll close with this story in the forest of northern Europe 
lies a tiny animal called the, the ermine. Look at that. What a pet, huh? He's widely known for snow white fur and the ermine takes tremendous pride in its pristine pure coat. Hunters know how complicated it is, man. Even, even dogs have difficulty in trapping the ermine. Yet hunters know that an ermine takes pride in the whiteness of its fur even above life itself. They figured this out. So for hundreds of years, fur hunters have taken cruel advantage of the ermine's nature to keep its coat clean at all costs. The hunters, whine, the hunters find what appears to be the ermine's lair in the cleft of a rock or a hollow. And they go in and they smear the lair's entrance with filth and mud. Meanwhile, the dogs are circling the lair at a wide perimeter, gradually closing the circle. The ermine, sensing the presence of, of its enemy, it immediately goes to run to its lair. But when the ermine finds the entrance to its lair tarnished and tainted, it refuses to race into now its filthy refuge. Rather, the ermine will turn its back on the filth and face the dogs. He preserves the purity of his coat at the price of his life. He would, be, he would rather be stained by the blood than stained by the filth. That's why Florentine master Leonardo da Vinci used only ermine brushes in his sacred paintings. That's why European royalty to this day still wear ermine collars. That ermine, the ermine is a symbol, a symbol of the high price of purity. And the apostle Paul would literally give us these words that reminded me of the ermine. Romans 13, 11 through 14. And that knowing the time, it is high time to wake up out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than we, we believe. The night is far spent. The games are over. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly. As in the day. Not in rioting and drunkenness. Not in chambering and wantonness. Not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. I've got to put on Christ. My thoughts, my mindset. They've got to all be ran through Him. I've got to pursue righteousness. I've got to guard my heart through Him. I've got to be led by His Spirit. I've got to make sure that I'm doing what I need to do. Because I can get to that judgment seat one day. And say, Lord, I've cast out devils in your name. I preached. I led. People thought I had it all together. And he looks at me and says, that was great. But depart from me, thou worker of iniquity. I knew you not. You did all those things, but you didn't have a daily connection with me. You loved mercy and redemption, but you didn't like the weight of judgment. Watch this. Do you know what John the Baptist ate? Locusts and wild honey. Locusts is a symbol of judgment. Wild honey is a symbol of God's goodness. And until we learn how to balance out, we need to feel the weight of that sometimes. Because if not, we're going to carry it and we're going to think, God, I was doing it right. And God said, no, you pulled it on a wagon the whole time. You never took it serious. You never took what you were carrying. You just went through the motions and put it on. Hey, it's as hard for me to preach today as it is for you to hear it. 
But I'm telling you what the word of the Lord is. If we're going to get rid of the wagons, we've got to deal with our heart issues and we've got to get rid of frustrations and we've got to get rid of things that are trying to hinder us and we've got to say, God, I'm committed. Because one day we have to stand before that judgment seat and say, God, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. I've lived my life for this moment. I've carried your glory the right way as we stand all over the house. I will never, ever Get up in this pulpit and preach personal convictions to you in my own life. Never. That's me, God. That's my relationship. But I will get up here and tell you this. Following him wholeheartedly is going to cost you some things. It's going to cost you some relationships with people. You love them. You don't ever hate anybody. But if they're pulling you back, you've got to move on. It's going to cost you places you can't go no more. Because it's trigger points. I was a temperamental young man. I was good. But till this day, there are trigger points in my life that I know I can't let that trigger, I can't let that light switch get flipped on. So my boundaries have to extend out because look, how am I going to get up here and preach to you if I'm putting these hands on people? You can't. So I've got to kneel at an altar and I've got to say, you know what, Josh? There are things that you were born into and your life was shaping into. And if you don't have a daily altar and you're just living on mercy and grace, but you're not feeling the weight of the responsibility, then you're not carrying his glory the right way. Because I don't judge. I don't judge if I'm doing right by how I preach because I can flop. I can do decent. I judge where I'm at by if I hurt his heart, does it still hurt my heart? And every eye closed, nobody looking around. Let me ask you a question, ma'am or so. When is the last time that it hurt your heart when you knew you hurt his heart? When is the last time you felt the divine tension? Mercy and grace is powerful, but there's got to be a balance. It's got to be a just balance. God is good. He's going to provide. But we've got to carry his glory the right way. We can't. That's the heart of no more wagons. We can't casually carry the glory of God. It takes commitment. Nobody looking around. I want you to lay your hand over your heart. And I want you and God having a conversation right now. This is a no-judge zone. We're not judging you. It's between you and God. Who are we to judge? We've all fallen. But there are some things God's dealing with. There's some frustrations and some things that are deep down in your spirit. You know, you know you've got to deal with it today. You know you feel the mercy, but you feel. We're going down.